Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Caitiff. Sam laid and stared at the green alarm clock blaring endlessly inches from his face. In his groggy state, he had to think about what the arms of the mechanical clock were telling him as he clicked it off. 4.30, he said out loud to nobody as he shook his head. He contemplated going back to bed for a moment, but he drove himself all the way up to the family farm and wasn't going to be for nothing. He sat up slowly, then dragged himself downstairs to Mr. Coffee. It finished dripping the coffee happily as he blankly stared at it. Sam filled his thermos and then poured a separate mug for his breakfast. He choked down stale muffins and drank his coffee. Gotta eat something, he thought to himself. Once he finished, he started to prep his gear, crossing items off the list in his mind as he stuffed items into his rucksack. Binoculars, hand warmers, and his flashlight. He made a sandwich for the day, then checked his watch. He felt urgency at the sight of 5.02 a.m. The sun rises in an hour, and he would have to be in the deer stand before that happened. Sam quickly dressed in his thermals under his sweater and jeans, then a jacket and wind pants over it all. Sam was worried about his thin gloves. He figured his hot packs would be enough to compensate for the cold weather. By the time he got all dressed up and loaded with his gear, he was sweating and was eager to get out into the brisk morning air. He put on his blaze orange vest and hat, then set out the door. He got about a hundred feet out of the cabin before he laughed and ran back inside. He forgot his gun. <laughs> Deer ain't gonna kill themselves, he thought as he laughed. He quickly grabbed the rifle off the gun rack and checked to make sure it was not loaded. It was his grandpa's Winchester Model 90. The gun is a relic in his family. Being a pre-1964 model, it dated back to when his grandfather bought their land and built this cabin. It's all wood body scratched and decayed from years of use. Looked beautiful to Sam. He checked the safety then loaded it with three rounds. He then shoved a fistful of extra rounds into his pocket and ran out the door. It was 5.04 a.m. by the time Sam started walking the trail. His flashlight flickered as he turned it on and Sam cursed. Don't you fucking do it, bitch. He muttered as the light choked on its batteries. He stubbornly pushed on, hoping he could walk the two miles before the light completely fizzled out. After ten minutes of walking, the light quit completely. Sam remained optimistic. Oh, I know where I'm going, he assured himself. The trail leading into the woods was a clear path. If he stayed on it, he would not need a light. So, he continued walking, careful not to lose his way. He listened as he walked. He took in the sounds of squirrels scratching at tree bark as they climbed, barking at him as he walked by. Birds sang and bats squeaked. Sam was happy and even happier he had not decided to go back to bed. He walked for a bit then stopped to light a cigarette. He checked his watch as he smoked. It read 5.18. Making good time, he thought to himself cheerfully. He breathed in the smoke and thought about his family, wishing his dad was up for the weekend to help him drag the deer that gets bagged. Sam stood there daydreaming gleefully of his skill. 
Then he spun around at the sound of crunching leaves. He looked around carefully, into the brush and through the deep volume of trees surrounding him. He couldn't know for sure without his flashlight, but unslung his rifle anyway. Hmm, hunt might be over pretty quick, Sam whispered to nobody. Then the deer, as of knowing Sam was armed now, ran away deeper into the woods. He finally let the air out of his lungs. Sam was relieved he didn't have to take a shot in the dark and hoped it wasn't a mountain lion preparing for breakfast. The situation made Sam shuffle down the trail a bit quicker. He was sweating now. The weight of his gun in his hands was beginning to wear on him as he speed walked. All he could think about was how hot he was under all the layers and how badly he had to pee. He decided to stop and relieve himself. As he peed on a tree, he looked over his shoulder. Nothing behind. He looked to both sides. Nothing to his sides. Not that he could see anyway. His body sweat, but his hands shivered. Sam wasn't sure if it was the nerves or the cold. He zippered everything up and put his belt back on. He lit another cigarette. As he stepped away from the tree, he had to double-take. What's wrong with this tree? he questioned. He sat and stared at it for a second, and then he realized, not the tree, it's what's past the tree. Now's that light, he thought, the dim glimmer in the distance, in the direction of where the trail leads. Poacher. This would be the first time in years that anyone had been caught poaching their land, and it was about to be the last. Sam angrily paced towards the light, angry that he had to do this, angry that the person was so close to the deer stand he would hunt out of. He slung his gun over his shoulder and kept a brisk pace. Sam wanted to get this over with, and quick, his watch read 5.27am. Sun comes up soon. As the light got within a few hundred yards, he noticed it wasn't a flashlight. It was a flickering, like a torch or oil lamp. It swung as the person moved. Oh, we got a fucking pioneer over here, Sam breathed as he paced towards it. He didn't want to yell and scare all the deer away as he got close, but he also didn't want to get shot in the dark by an excited hunter, being that Sam was lightless. So he called out, Hey, Sam called as quietly but firmly as he could. No response. He was still at least a hundred yards away, so he walked closer and called more loudly this time. Yo, hey man, what's going? And before Sam could finish his sentence, the flame vanished. Sam stopped and was at a loss for what to do next. He figured the poacher was making his escape now and he stood there waiting and listening, but didn't hear any fleeting steps in the distance. Standing motionless for what seemed like forever, Sam thought to himself, Well, it's gonna be light soon. I can't fuck around with this. In an impulse, Sam fired around into a nearby tree, hoping it would scare the hunter away if he hadn't already sneaked off. Now, in Sam's mind, he knew that was a really dumb thing to do. But this poacher was on their land and wouldn't have much to say to the cops if he went to them. Sam continued walking the path, confident the poacher wasn't sticking around after that. He thought his dad would be proud. Then Sam's pride fizzled into fear. All he could think to do was turn and run at the sound of someone sprinting right towards him. Sam wildly ran into the woods with footsteps approaching rapidly behind. How close? Well, Sam wasn't sure. Then suddenly, as if sent by God, a deep runoff appeared for Sam. Sam kissed the dirt with a face-first plummet into the hole. He broke his fall partially with the rifle, then rolled onto his back. He laid completely still. No sprinting steps anymore, just someone walking nearby. And then nothing. He laid there without breathing. What is happening right now? Sam thought, is he going to try to kill me? Am I going to have to kill someone today? His mind raced and panic set in. He quietly flipped the safety off of his rifle and waited for something to happen. 
He wasn't sure how long he laid there like that. Nothing made a sound. No leaves crunched. No squirrels scurried. No birds chirped. No bats squeaked. Absolute silence. It was as if the whole forest had stopped to see what happens next. Sam looked around as best he could without moving his head. Nothing. The minutes felt like hours as Sam laid there, panicking. And then, as suddenly as Sam had fallen into his hole, a man's jovial, thunderous voice shot through the darkness. You know you smell amazing, right? A puzzled look laced with panic and fear spread across Sam's face as he processed the words. Before any tangible thoughts could be made, the man continued to speak. Fear is a fickle thing. It comes and goes. Just like that, the man said, followed by the snap of his fingers. Well, it's like waking up from a nightmare. As soon as you realize it was all fake, boom, fear's gone. Oh, oh, better yet, say you're moments away from unavoidable conflict. Uh, you're scared of it, but as soon as it starts, or oh, the adrenaline kicks in and you don't have any time to think about how scared you are. You just start shooting until it's over. You know what I mean? The man asks with nearly uncontainable excitement. Sam's eyes began to well with tears. He tried not to sob and give his position away. He held his breath as the man began to speak again. I'm sure you of all people get that. But back to my main point. You smell... Amazing. Fear's the sweetest, most deliciously pungent smell of all of them. God, it is orgasmic. Busting open the gut while skinning it? One of my favorites, but not quite as good. You of all people should know what that smells like. Well, you've done it nearly every deer season so far, haven't you, Sam? Sam shook now, not from the cold, but from the gripping sense of terror. He felt like he was in a dream. He fantasized about his bed and home. Not the cabin, but back home in Missouri. He wished he would have just been lazy and stayed in bed, made a proper breakfast, maybe taking the trail bike out. Now he laid in a hole in the middle of the woods, praying to a god he didn't believe in. The hole seemed to have gotten deeper as the dusk turned to dawn slightly, the light of day peeking through the overcast sky, dimly lighting the forest floor. Still too dark to see anything past his soon-to-be grave. The excited voice began to maniacally ramble again. Well, I luckily get to smell fear, you see. I'm blessed. Well, it's not a skill learned, but, well, it's a skill given. And as it happens, well, today I'm feeling mighty generous. Today, I will bless you. Now, isn't that something? I'm generous, the man yelled. But your window of opportunity is going to quickly expire. Once that sun's up, you see, I have to go. I don't like the sun, you see. You see? <laughs> but it's okay. Fear is fickle, like I said, so you don't have to worry a bit. Sam lay there for God knows how long. Shakes slowed as he began to gear for action. Well, now it's now or never, he thought. He gripped his rifle and waited for it to be a bit brighter so he could get a proper shot at the fucker. He felt drugged and hazy. Then, after a few hour-long minutes, Sam shot up in a moment of pure adrenaline and faced the direction of the voice he heard only moments ago, pointing his gun and completely prepared to shoot a man. What Sam saw paralyzed him all over again. Only feet away stood a naked man patterned with gunshots, some fresh, some scarred, patterning his whole body. His head caved in on certain spots, his jaw looked broken and loose. But when he spoke again, the words came out just fine. Ready? He asked with genuine concern. Sam shot at the man's face with the clear hit right under his eye. Even in the pale dawn, Sam could see the blood and brain shoot out onto the tree behind the creature. And at that moment, 
Sam felt pain in his shoulder. He glanced down quickly and realized he had splintered the stock of the gun in his fall. The creature laughed gleefully. Whoa, nice fucking shot. Nobody's ever made a shot like that. I bet you can't hit it again. I'll be careful. You only get one more... Sam had already jacked his last round and fired again, this time hitting the forehead. The creature wavered and shook his head then leaped forward faster than Sam could react. All Sam could do was fall backward and try to shield himself with his rifle. As the creature made contact, it began to scream, shrieking like a pig about to be put down, like a dying rabbit being ripped apart by coyotes, like a deer being mauled. It shrieked so loudly Sam had to cover his ears. The thing stood in the ditch screeching and clawing at the butt of Sam's rifle protruding from its chest. Sam climbed out of the ditch as fast as he could and took off down the trail, running faster than he had ever had in his entire life. He eventually found the trail and took off towards home. He heard the shrieks grow distant, and what seemed like only a few minutes later, he was back at the cabin. It took longer than he would have liked to grab his bag and run to the truck. He started it up and shot down the gravel drive towards the main road, driving and looking over his shoulder for a naked creature peppered with gunshots. As Sam turned left onto the pavement, he hit the gas and took off faster than he should. He needed to get cell reception fast. As he hit 80 down the two-lane road, Sam continued to look in every direction, then screeched to a halting stop. He stared wide-eyed into the open fields of their property. On the hilltop was seemingly every animal on their property. Coyotes walked among deer, turkeys strutted, squirrels hopped, foxes leaped, cougars walked, and among all of them stood the naked creature, cradling a fox in his arms like a baby staring directly at Sam's truck. The gash in his chest poured black blood all over his body. He smiled and pointed at Sam and began shouting into the air. Sam took off as fast as he had stopped and never looked back. Even at the distance, Sam could tell what had been mouthed and he shuddered at the thought. He gripped the 44 Magnum he had loaded before leaving tightly. I'll find you. The creature had said. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't want to go into the woods. A few months ago, one of my closest friends at work and I realized our feelings were growing into something more than just a friendship. In our company, it's frowned upon to date co-workers. Now, technically, it's not against the rules, but it is frowned upon. When we decided to take our relationship to the next level, we decided it was best for both of us to keep it private, at least for a while. He lived out in the country, over 40 minutes away from work and where I lived. It was perfect. He was so far out and in the middle of nowhere, we could stay out there and go into the little town nearby without worry of being caught by chatty co-workers. The only real problem was that we both worked night shifts. I almost always work at midnight and he usually works at 4 in the morning. That led us to a lot of commuting in the pitch black that can only be seen on country roads. I always enjoyed the drive. I'm a lover of the dark, a true night owl to my core. I loved the drives both when we were together and when I drove in on my own. Some days, I'd work a half a shift and drive out to his house on his days off, crawl into bed with him. Those were always my favorite drives. He lived with some of his family in a large home on an enormous parcel of land. It sprawled for acres up a large hill with a pasture, 
and further up, thickly wooded forest. I always felt safe there. There were guns strategically placed around the house, and enough space between any other house that you could do just about whatever you wanted without anyone calling the cops or knocking on your front door to tell you to keep it down. I always loved that. You know, the privacy of it all. I joked on several occasions that the only downfall would be if you needed medical or any other emergency services, that it would take them forever to get out there. And once they did, they might not even be able to find the place. The first time we did it was a few weeks after we started seeing each other. It was on a dark, cool night when there was a meteor shower. We carried a giant pile of blankets out to the top of the pasture, just before the woods, and laid down. We made a little bed there and curled up under the blankets to watch the show. After an hour or so of talking and holding hands, things escalated. And just as things were started to get heated, I had the oddest feeling of being watched. It felt like something in the distance just out of you was watching. My entire body shuddered, and I tried to shake the feeling. Now, convince myself it was nothing more than the cold making me shudder, and perhaps an animal in the barn, or maybe even just an owl having a look to see where the noise was coming from. I let myself believe that so it wouldn't ruin my night. That night, and, well, many nights to follow, I was plagued with horrible nightmares, ones I couldn't explain or understand. It felt like being watched being watched in a way I couldn't explain. I almost felt like if I could just stay asleep for just one more minute, I could see what it was that was so interested in me. And I often woke up in a pool of sweat, tears streaming down my face. The relationship was still new and I didn't want him to think I was crazy. So I kept it to myself. And at some point, I realized it only ever happened out there. I slept dreamlessly in my own bed. I began to sleep over less and less over the next couple of months as the dreams only became more vivid. That is, until I realized I was afraid to sleep alone. The dreams began to haunt my waking life as well. One night I fell asleep before him. He was watching TV and having a couple of beers when he said he heard me. I'd been whimpering in my sleep and when he walked over to check on me, he could see the tears rolling down my cheeks. He shook me and shook me, saying my name louder after each effort. When I finally did wake, it was all of a sudden and with a scream. In fact, I'm not sure who it scared more. He told me the moment I opened my eyes, they locked onto his, and I looked possessed or haunted. That it looked like my soul was not in my body. He was visibly shaken by the experience, and at this point, I felt obligated to explain to him how it had been going on for months, that I couldn't sleep, that the feeling was everywhere. The dreams weren't all of it, though. As I was driving, especially to his house, I began to feel watched, like something just out of the scope of my headlights was waiting for me, lurking just beyond the veil. One night when the moon was full, I could have sworn I saw something out there amongst the trees. My life had been turned upside down. The lack of sleep had been affecting me in ways I didn't even realize it could. I have no appetite, and I've stopped caring about my appearance. I sometimes go for days without changing from my boyfriend's oversized hoodie. My work has begun to slip. I'm afraid something bad is going to happen any day. I'm a ghost of the person I once was all because of this feeling. No, it was more than feeling. Something is there. My loving boyfriend has been incredible through all of this. Now he might think I'm losing my mind, but he's known me long enough to know I wouldn't just make something up like this. He's been doing everything he can to help. His initial suggestion was to get blackout drunk. One that with all the stresses in my life, well, I was happy to try. But still, the dreams. Only it was worse that night. I had even more trouble pulling myself out of the dream. 
It felt like whatever was watching me was able to get even closer. So close, in fact, I could smell it. The thick, musty smell of decay and death loomed heavy as I awoke. I was barely able to lean over the bed before puking violently all over the hardwood floor in my slippers. I've also tried sleeping pills, meditation, herbal supplements, and exercise. Nothing has worked. I'm afraid to sleep alone because if I can't wake myself up, someone has to be there to make sure it doesn't get me. He tried to convince me to go see a psychiatrist, but I refused. And that's when he made the suggestion of trying to find a forum online for other people who couldn't sleep. Seek help from the same place any good millennial would. The internet. I looked and looked, browsing forum after forum, begging for advice from anyone who had the slightest idea about what I was experiencing. Now, most everyone I talked to seemed to think it was one of two things. One being sleep paralysis, or two, a mental breakdown that they attributed to early onset of a mental disorder. That is, until very late one night, as I sat in my truck waiting for it to heat up, I scrolled through yet another forum and saw a picture. The worst picture I've ever seen in my entire life. The face was almost like a deer's skull, but sharper, angrier looking. It had a humanoid shape, except everything about it was longer. It must have been about seven or eight feet tall, but its limbs were all much too long. The arms stretched down long past the midpoint of the body, and the long, horrible hands stretched out beyond that. It was cloaked in black, so the torso and legs were only a shroud of black, making it impossible to tell what horrors were beneath the darkness. The worst part was the eyes. Truly soulless eyes. There was no pigment, no iris, no pupil. Only blank white orbs staring out from the skull. But somehow, even still, they were watching me. And I knew that that was the thing that had been there all those months. The longer I looked, the thicker the smell became. It was so strong I could taste it. It filled my nose and mouth, choking me. My head was spinning as I began to gasp for air against the putrid smell of rotting corpse. Just before I passed out, I saw the caption under the photo. They're watching you. They're waiting for you. About 20 minutes later, I was awoken by a loud thumping on my window. I had passed out and a co-worker saw me sleeping in my truck and was going to scare me. Well, it turns out they were the one who ended up being scared. There was puke down the front of my shirt and dried blood under my nose. Evidently, I looked dead. I explained that it was just a migraine and swiftly drove off. On the way to my boyfriend's, my phone died, making the dark drive seem even lonelier and more frightening. Silence gives your brain too much space to think. There's no radio signal out that far, so I drove in silence. I was horrified at what I had seen, but under that was a layer of relief. I wasn't crazy. As I drove on, I also felt that I wasn't alone. When I made it out to his place, I ran upstairs to his room and plugged my phone in. Then, violently shook him awake exclaiming that I might have somewhere to start digging. He got one look at me and immediately sent me to the shower and brought his favorite pajama pants and a big soft t-shirt down from the bathroom for me. He leaned against the sink opposite the shower while I got cleaned up and talked soothly to me, almost like you would talk to a fussy child you were trying to lull back to sleep. And for the first time in months, I felt safe. I was going to find out what was going on. I had an idea now, you know, somewhere to begin. I went to show the image I had found to my boyfriend, but I couldn't find it again. It was nowhere. The forum I had been in didn't even seem to exist. I was hysterical. I knew what I had seen. I've searched endless hours trying to find it again, but it was gone forever, lost in the web. I can't even find a mention of something similar. 
I tried to explain what I had seen, but there isn't a way to describe the way it made me feel, or that awful smell drowning me. To a logical person, none of this makes any sense. My boyfriend was no exception, but his love for me let him break away from that to at least explore the possibility that I was being watched by this demon, this monster, this thing. So last night, there was a full moon. And not just any full moon. A full moon on the summer solstice. It was rare and beautiful. The giant moon lighting up the sky above me. The air was crisp and cool as I started my truck. I began to drive from my boyfriend's house just after 4am with the moon high above me. The extra light was nice on the winding backcountry roads. Then I began to feel it again. The dark, terrifying feeling. I've been getting for months. It gets worse and worse every time. I can only imagine it because it's getting closer to me, to whatever it is that it wants. I felt the dark horror fall over me, and I began to slow my truck down to a crawl, just beyond any corner, hiding just behind the trees. It could be there. I thought as I saw something move just around the slight turn in the road and slammed on my brakes. I came to a screeching stop in the middle of the road. I could feel my heart slamming against my ribcage, trying to break free. There was a loud noise and lights behind me, and then in front of me as a huge white semi-truck swerved around me going at least 70 miles an hour. I looked back into the woods where I had seen the creature that follows but it was just blackness and trees illuminated by my high beams. I flicked on my hazard lights and sat catching my breath for just a moment. It seemed as though I had narrowly avoided death twice in the span of a few minutes. And that's when I heard it. The most horrible noise I had ever heard. It was all metal scraping, smashed glass, and what I can only describe as crunching. Hearing it hurt my head, it was as if there was so much going on my brain couldn't process it all at once. And gathering what I had left of my courage, I decided if I could figure out what had happened. I drove slowly up around a corner and saw nothing, then another, and another. And that's when I saw it. Less than a mile from where I had stopped my truck, in the road was the semi. It had rolled completely blocking the road. It looked like it had rolled several times before eventually landing upside down across the road. There was glass and blood everywhere, far too much blood to lose and still be alive. I parked my truck and slowly approached the mangled cab of the semi. I could smell it again, the awful smell of rotting corpse, of decomposing organic matter, of that monster. But then I began to see them deer. There were at least three that I could see, or at least pieces of what must have been at least three deer. I was the first on scene to the most brutal car accident I'd ever seen. I did what I could do to help, called 911, checked on the driver, but there was nothing else I could do but to make sure that the semi wasn't going to burst into flames. As I stood there waiting for emergency services to show up, I saw it again, the monster, the demon, whatever you want to call it. It was there, watching me just like always. I could smell it getting closer and closer to me. I stared out at it, making contact with its deep, soulless eyes, and in that moment, I felt almost comfortable with it, almost pulled towards it. It began to slowly move towards me, not walk not run, just move. It was drawing me towards it, and I obliged. I was so tired and so done with being scared that I did just what it wanted. I walked slowly towards it, the terror in my chest subsiding. I turned away for just a second as I heard the ambulance approaching, and it was gone. The monster had left me, just like that. Now I haven't slept... The dreams are worse than ever. Its face haunts me day in and day out, tormenting me, 
beckoning me into the woods. And I know what it wants now. It wants me. I just... Well, I don't know why or for what purpose. Does it want to kill me? Or did it save my life? I need answers. So in my last attempt at finding help, I reach out to you. Do you know what this thing is? What does it want with me? Can I get rid of it? Please help. Please, God, help me. I don't want to go into the woods, but I don't know if I can resist it much longer. I don't want to go into the woods. I don't want to go into the woods. I don't want to go into the woods. The Black Woods of Beaumont Daniel Warrington leapt to his feet. The fire roared and crackled in the hearth, and the wind gusted outside, and for a second, he doubted whether he had really heard it. A second heavier crash, like a great clap of thunder, swiftly relieved him of such foolish notions. He rushed across the drawing room, his plush burgundy smoke-it jacket billowing out behind him, shoving aside an armchair in his haste, and emerged into the entrance hall to see the stout oak doors rattling in their frame. He snatched the Sharps Model 1874 from its stand above the fireplace and dashed across the brilliant marble floor, feeding a new cartridge from the stash in the pocket of his smoking jacket into the chamber. Too late, he flung open the doors only to catch the briefest glimpse of an immense bulk retreating into the circle of trees. He returned his attention to the doors, deep gouges in the wood, the lower panels splintered and dented. He slammed his fist against the door frame in frustration, ignoring the hot lance of pain that pierced his hand. Daniel Warrington had had enough. This was the third incident of its kind to occur since his taking up residence in Nighthill Manor two months previous. Pausing only to pull on a pair of worn leather boots and a brown scarf, he considered rousing his manservant, Dunwald Marston, to accompany him, but decided against the idea. The old man was probably tucked up in bed by now. There was no reason to disturb him. Whatever it was that walked the woods of Beaumont Chase and menaced the manor, Daniel Warrington would deal with it himself. After all, Hadn't he faced down enormous black bears during his months on the continent, looking death in the sharp yellow eyes deep within the Peruvian rainforests, slain a great white lion, king of the African plains, with nothing but a blade in his bare hands? Determined and resolute, Daniel strode out to meet the night. The air was frozen and the skies empty. Before him at the clearing's edge loomed the woods, a vast black wall of frost-bitten limbs and flaking bark. The wind, at least, it was probably the wind, howled between the slender trunks and seethed in the clusters of tall dark pines. Pale icicles, thin and crooked like skeletal fingers, scintillated as Christmas baubles hung from a tree. A black, dead tree. As he crossed the clearing, his hand fell to the lamat belted at his hip, deemed far too unreliable for field use by the U.S. Army. He had managed to procure one of the few remaining prototypes from a customs officer up in Birmingham. In addition to the revolver and the sharps, he carried a long, thick knife with an elaborate deer bone handle sheathed at its waist, a gift from an elderly knife maker by the name of James Black. Several years previous, the blade had since tasted the blood of almost every animal that walked, crawled, or swam upon the face of the earth. Regretting not taking the time to change out of his smoking jacket, Daniel gritted his teeth and trudged on through the biting cold. Tracking the mysterious beast was proving to be exceedingly difficult. Having neglected in his haste to bring a lantern, it was all he could do to discern the sporadic trail of odd, hoof-like prints. Their distinctive cleft, although somewhat more pronounced, reminded him of the tracks of the curious black-and-white striped deer that ran freely across the African plains. But, 
with a slight difference. These were sunk far too deeply in the snow. Whatever the beast was, it was of a most prodigious size. For minutes that dragged like hours, he plodded onwards by the sickly light of the moon. The only sound, that of fresh snow crunching beneath his boots. The wind nipped cruelly at his exposed face and hands, bringing with it a faint mist that flowed around him in shreds and tatters, snatching at his clothes with ghostly, insubstantial fingers. His every breath fogged the air with an ephemeral white cloud and seemed to draw the seeping chill ever deeper into his body. Something moved in the outer darkness of this periphery. By the time he had leveled the sharps, it was gone, if it had never been there at all. The darkness was unfolding now. A great all-encompassing blackness held at bay only by thin shafts of moonlight. A branch snapped to his right, and he whirled in time to see a dislodged clump of snow thud to the ground. Taking a deep breath, he once again leveled the sharps. His mind was calm and still, a vast frozen lake in midwinter's grasp. The weight of the stock in the hollow of his shoulder felt good. It felt right. It had been far too long since he'd seen the spark of life fade from the eyes of a dying animal. Slowly, cautiously now, he picked his way between peeling silver birches and over the fallen trunks of once magnificent oaks. Alert to even the smallest motion, he hunted in silence, pressing onwards into the woods, deeper than ever before. Eventually, the tracks halted at a great twisted snarl of brambles stretching taller than a man. There was no sign of his quarry passing through, and truly the tracks continued in no other direction. Fighting back, disquiet at the idea of an animal so large capable of clearing such a barrier with a single leap, Daniel slung the sharps over his back and unsheathed his knife. He would have to act swiftly now. Stumbling forth from a narrow tunnel of thorn and tangle, Daniel emerged into a misted clearing. Damp from the moisture in the air, Lank locks of hair clung to his forehead. His face and hands were sliced in several places, and his smoking jacket was all but ruined. Dunwald Marston would not be amused. He straightened and unslung the sharps, taking stock of his surroundings. The wall of brambles encircled the entire clearing, and it appeared he had forced his way through at one of the lowest points. In places, the brambles grew around the overhanging branches of nearby trees, crawling along their drooping limbs like sinister barbed snakes. All across the clearing, spires of rock jutted upwards from the mists, their twisted points scraping the skies. Small, trembling gouts of white had begun to spiral down, but Daniel barely noticed. His attention was elsewhere. It was not often that Daniel found himself at a loss for words. Now, he could barely remember to breathe. Dominating the center of the clearing and towering over its surroundings was a dark, cyclopean monolith of impossibly immense proportions. Plainly visible upon its surface were an array of nightmarish reliefs, upon which the gibbous moon shone sickeningly. Thin tendrils of mist curled up and around the hideous obelisk, crashing against its side like churning ethereal waves. Mother Nature took a deep breath, and the night itself fell still. Deep within the mists, something moved. Clack. Clack, clack. He could feel it now. The beast's eyes were upon him. The fine, downy hairs on the back of his neck stood erect, and his skin rippled with goose flesh. Clack. Clack, clack. The sound echoed hollowly across the clearing. He sighted down the barrel of the sharps, and willed his trembling hands to still, shifting anxiously beneath the gaze of that loathsome monolith. 
He watched and waited. Clack, clack, clack. The stag shambled forth from the swirling mists. A blackened crown of jagged antlers twisted in all directions adorned his head. As the beast sauntered past the monolith, the tips of those dreadful antlers screeched across the black stone. The sharps dropped from Daniel Warrington's shaking hands, clattering away across the ground. The stag's jaw lolled wide, revealing a maw bulging with pointed yellow teeth, akin to those of the sleek tiger-striped sharks of the West Pacific. Only now did he understand the truly monstrous proportions of the beast. Its head stood fully twice the height of a man, above which loomed the terrible antlers. The monster's snout glistened wetly in the waxing moonlight, and its tattered fur seemed to crawl and shift as though it were a living carpet of chitinous beetles. Patches of yellowing bone shone through its coat, fur and skin clung to its forelegs in patches, like moss to the trunk of a rotten tree. Dark rivulets of blood trickled from the hollows of the beast's eyes, a pair of vast, empty holes in which green flames guttered and billowed. The stag snorted, stamping its feet with a sharp crack like a gunshot, causing a murder of sleek black crows to take erupt in flight from a nearby tree. Coils of mist drifted lazily around the beast, never quite coming close enough to touch its slick black fur. Its hooves were bloodied bone, heavy enough to crush a man's skull to dust beneath their tread. And then it spoke, a guttural, rasping sound abhorrent to the minds of men. At this, some hidden string, pulled taut in fear, finally snapped, and the Lamat leapt into Daniel's hand as if it had been there all along. He flipped up the lever on the end of the hammer, causing the striker to fall upon the primer set directly below it. The stag let out a monstrous bellow, lowered its head, and charged. Daniel took careful aim, drawing a bead atop the beast's skull. The stag roared, as did the Lamat. The blast of buckshot from the revolver's secondary barrel disintegrated the top of the stag's head. Something coiled and dark pulsated amidst the ruin of its skull, shifting and oozing against the splintered bone. The beast hardly faltered. Daniel could only stare, horrified, as the wound immediately began to heal, bone reforming before his very eyes. Skin, however, remained absent, and he at once understood the significance of the many bald patches speckling the creature's hide. How many before him had tried and failed to slay this dark, majestic horror? Razor-sharp antlers gored his stomach, and then he was tumbling across the frosted earth towards the monolith. He pressed a hand to his stomach and felt what seemed to be a handful of snakes squirming against his palm. Blood seeped between his fingers. Clack. Clack, clack. The stag towered over him now, whispering blasphemous insanities of the old gods which dwelt beneath the earth and deep down in the seas and in the dark forgotten places of the world where the stars had never shone. Dreadful images began to form in his mind of nameless monstrosities uncoiling beneath the earth and polyphemus-like creatures emerging from the oceans. The insignificance of man crushed down upon him, followed momentarily by the stag's hoof, which fell with a sickening crunch, the splitting of a ripe melon. Daniel Warrington thought no more. Dunwall Marston sat in the darkened library, reading by the guttering flame of a candle burnt nearly down to the stump, a leather-bound tome of substantial thickness, The Midwinter World. But the book was Midwinter World in name only. The cover concealed a far more sinister home, one which had previously resided for many years under the lock and key in a sub-basement of the British Museum. 
hidden by fools who possessed neither the strength of mind nor the courage to conquer the horrors bound within the book's wafer-thin pages. From the walls of the room, glassy eyes reflected the candlelight, inch-long yellowing fangs frozen in snarls of anger and roars of defiance. It sundered Dunwall's heart to see such beautiful, magnificent creatures murdered for the cruel sport of a single man. His gaze wandered to the umbrella stand in the far corner, fashioned from the foot of a majestic white rhino, and he felt the familiar fires of hatred flare up in his chest. That Warrington had the nerve, the gall, to slaughter even a single one of Duzu's precious children grated on Dunwald's very sense of being. Well, it would not happen again. Ishmael would see to that. Thin, wavering shafts of moonlight filtered through the picture window, picking out every scar and crag on Dunwall's tanned, calloused hands, the hands of one who had spent a lifetime in the wilderness, wandering the secret, untamed places of the earth. The book at his fingertips remained dim and dark, the light itself refusing to touch such blasphemous pages. This suited Dunwald perfectly. Some things were born only to dwell in the darkness. Dunwald drew the flickering candle closer, leaned forward, and continued to read. From the earth where groweth darkwood, in any time when the rites are spoken, can the holder of the knowledge summon the walker, child of great Duzu, he who dwelleth in the vast wilderness between the worlds, and eateth the soul and flesh of man. He that roam when the moon wanes yellow, and is called Ishmael. Only the supplication to the walker of the worlds between can one escape the wrath of Duzu. Half-bodied. It was a sweaty Saturday afternoon. We had already prepared all equipment for the trip we did not know would change our lives forever. Exactly one year ago was Sadie and my wedding. We met out of love for hiking four years ago. I saw her struggling on top of the cold green hills with an injured foot. By instinct, I went to her to help her, and ever since then, we often went hiking together, told each other about our lives, asked each other what we liked, and eventually fell in love with one another. During the span of our relationship, we formed a professional hiking team of six people. Sadie and I were the leaders, and we eventually got our siblings to join us and bring in friends, too. Though we were a professional hiking team, we treated it like a business. We brought clients out with us, but we still formed a strong bond of friendship. Whenever each one of us had free time, we would immediately plan a hike. Three years into our relationship, I finally decided to ask her to be with me for the rest of our lives. On her first anniversary, we decided to go on a hike. Sadie had been pregnant during this time, for about four months, so she was still fit enough to go with me. Since it was a very special day, we decided to go to a forest where almost no one has gone to. The Bund Forest. This forest is known for being crammed with so many trees. Many people had said it was colder than usual, than other hiking spots they went to. I also once heard a rumor that two people had died in the forest, but I doubted that was true. Sadie and I finished preparing our equipment for this special trip. We contacted the rest of the team to inform them about it. We always told them to have their phones right beside them in case anything could happen. They agreed to keep in touch. My wife and I changed our clothes, packed our bags, and finally headed out. We were really lucky to have our first anniversary fall on a Saturday. It was summer, but since the forest was rumored to be cold, we brought extra clothing and some hand warmers. I decided that we needed to start at 3 in the afternoon. We went for a quick bite at a local restaurant, and then we arrived at the entrance of the forest. There was a park ranger guarding the main entrance. He checked all of our bags and then let us in. The first stage of this hike was walking up a giant hill, 
It was quite stressful since there were more bushes than expected, and there was no clear pathway since this was not a famous hiking spot. Sadie almost drank all of her water, but I kept telling her to try and save it. The bushy pathways were odd for me and her, but we were always open to new experiences that will expand our hiking knowledge, and doing it together is always better. As we were walking up the hill, we heard rustling in the bushes, but we didn't really notice and care about it the first time, because we always hear these noises when we went out into the woods. Every 20 minutes I sent a text to the rest of my team, showing my location and my status, if I am safe or if I am in potential danger. This became quite a problem for us because the higher up we went on the hill, the weaker the signal got. It took longer and longer for us to send the texts, but I was sure that nothing bad would happen to us. We headed on to our spot that we planned to go, doing what we usually do while we're walking during our trip eating snacks, talking about life, and being fascinated of the nature around us. We noticed it was beginning to get darker, and we had spent more time hiking than we had planned to. We thought ahead of time and actually brought our useful night equipment. We did our normal routine of setting up our tent and lights. Sadie and I had separate tents. We then fell asleep. I then woke up to the sound of thunder and I realized that my tent was soaking wet. I did not think much about it and tried to just go back to sleep, though it was quite difficult to do so. I felt very hazy and I felt something touch my feet. I said to myself that it was just my wife trying to get my attention because she was uneasy with the storm. So naturally, I went over to her tent to check on her but I found her perfectly sound asleep. I woke her up just to be sure. She told me she was sleeping the whole time. She didn't know what I was talking about. I immediately thought of all the possible reasons this could have happened. There could have been a stalker following us. It could have been a park ranger that guarded the forest. Or it could have been an animal looking for food. Anything was possible, really. I grabbed my equipment bag and took out my portable camera that was fit for being used as a temporary surveillance camera, especially for hikes. I set it up on a tree so it had a full view of me and my wife's camp. The storm calmed and we went back to sleep peacefully. I woke up to my wife who was in shock because the batteries of my portable camera were on the ground, but I was certain that I had screwed the camera properly the previous night. I grabbed the batteries and the camera and decided to put it back into place. I tried to turn on the camera and thankfully it worked, but the camera didn't record any footage of the last night. I was very certain that I had pressed the record button. It was all very odd to me. Sadie put the blame on me for not being mindful enough and not for double checking everything. Even though I was very sure I had the batteries in the camera and that it was on recording. I thought this would be like any other small fight we had when we would go hiking, but she started bringing up my mistakes of the past, and this turned out to be a very big argument. I decided to just not mind her emotions since she was pregnant, but she wanted me to leave, so I bundled up my tent and I went away from the campsite. It was a very risky move that could both threaten our lives, but we trusted each other enough to go alone. We knew that we could stay safe because we had our cell phones with us and that our team was ready to help us any time if need be. I packed up all my stuff, told her to stay safe, and headed on to another part of the forest. I hiked around with my heavy backpack behind me. I took pictures of all the plants and insects that I wanted to show my wife later, then decided to contact my team and send them texts of location of my wife. 10 or 15 minutes of walking had passed, but I still had not gotten a response from anyone. I was starting to worry about Sadie. I packed my water bottle and camera back into my backpack and tried to go back to camp, hoping that she would still be in the same spot where I left her. I was smart enough to leave trail markers to find my way back, so it was easy. But right before I could see the camp, I saw Sadie trembling and crying so I immediately ran towards her. Her hands were shaking so much, 
I'd never seen her in such a state of fear before. It looked like she had seen something terrible. She told me that what she saw was not human and pointed to a far part of the forest. I wanted to see what it was and I immediately ran alone to where she had pointed to find this thing she was talking about, not even thinking of what it could possibly be and how it could harm me. But then something very strange fell into my vision. I saw my wife hiding in the bushes with a weapon ready, eyes filled with terror. I was extremely shocked. I was certain that I ran all the way here alone and that she could not have ran faster than me and then hide in the bushes. I was confused but then I realized the lady at the camp was not Sadie because Sadie would know how to handle herself. My wife, the one hiding in the bushes, holding the knife, slowly told me that the lady at the camp was not her. Now I knew this was Sadie. She knows how to protect herself. As we were both shocked and filled with adrenaline, we ran back to camp, hoping that this thing would not be there anymore. And to our luck, it wasn't there. We quickly packed all the Sadie's stuff and we left what wasn't important. We didn't want to take our chances and risk our lives staying there any longer than we had to. We ran looking for an opening in the forest, trying to escape. But then we heard the rustling from the bushes around us again. The same sound we heard at the start of our hike. A loud, ear-piercing screech was heard by the both of us. Naturally, we both looked back and saw the most shocking thing that we had ever seen. It was a half-bodied, thin, gray creature with a huge tongue. We clutched our knives in our hands harder, and we ran for our lives. But then I heard a body slam onto the ground. I looked back and I saw Sadie, who had just tripped over a stone. She was about to get up, but this screeching creature caught up to her and bit her leg. With her foot hanging from this creature's mouth, she screamed for my help. I did my best and immediately tried to help her, grabbing her and trying to pull her out from the creature's grasp, trying to cut the monster with my knife, but nothing worked. I fought and fought to save her. I could not imagine losing her. As I was slashing at the creature, I contacted my team, but as we were at the top of the hill, with woods surrounding us, there was no way for them to receive our message fast enough. The creature then ripped Sadie in half and ran towards the forest. I tried to run after it. I did everything, but I witnessed my wife and my child and her get eaten. Strangely enough, the only parts this creature had eaten of my wife were her legs and stomach. Now realizing that my wife and child are gone... I knew that I would be next. I prepared myself and I was ready to accept it, because if I have to lose the love of my life, I'd rather lose myself too. But strangely, this creature did not even try to attack me. After it had eaten Sadie, it had fainted and fallen. Now, there were two half-bodied corpses laying in front of me. I did not let my emotions take over yet. I had to find a way out as quickly as possible. I ran all the way until I could see the head of the trail, and I saw my hiking team waiting for me. They saw the shock in my face, and I immediately started letting all of my emotions out. Naturally, they decided to call the police. But they weren't of any help, and they regarded it as an unimportant issue, stating that I had killed my wife and had made a really bad story about it. I really do not why I thought the police would believe me. Even I could not believe what I had seen. I was charged with murder, considering that they did not have enough proof of me actually being the one who had killed my wife. I pled out, and seven years later, I was out of prison. I got my hiking team back together to investigate the case of my wife and my child. We started an investigation with all the hikers who shared hiking experiences with me. We came up with a theory that should make sense. The creature that we saw was a bondheist, written in fairy tales and folklore. A creature with only half a body, bat wings, and a huge tongue. 
It's required to feed on pregnant women, to be granted eternal life in paradise. After half of the body of the victim is eaten, they will be the next Bundheis to find the new prey. Surely enough, the articles that we found about this creature were very accurate to what I had seen. My wife's upper body had never been found. Not a day goes by that I do not think about Sadie. I'll not stop investigating the case until the danger of the Bundheist will be known around the world. I visit her tombstone a lot, sharing my hiking experiences that I had without her. She may not be in there, but I'm sure she could hear me. I printed out the pictures I took before she was gone, the ones I took for her to see, and placed them on the grave hoping she would be happy to see these photographs. We had gathered more people around the world who had claimed to have sightings of the Bundeist, writing us emails or making Facebook posts, and soon enough, we'll know how to put an end to this. Today was supposed to be our 8th anniversary together. I recently visited her grave again to celebrate with her and remind her how much I miss her and how much I love her. I brought flowers and photographs of our hiking trips, and this is what I said. I had told her all about my recent hiking adventures and about how much I missed her. After I spoke to her, I looked around at the tree line. The graveyard is surrounded by a huge forest, and I saw my half-bodied wife flying and looking at me.